Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, here live on Wego 91.1. FM at 8 a.m. on Thursdays or wherever you're listening or whatever time you're listening to on the podcast. If you're um, this week, we're joined with Dr. Monique Lanley, who is an associate professor of history at Auburn University, where she teaches classes ranging on topics from technology and civilization to the Cold War, space exploration, oral history, and immigration history. Her first book, *German Racketeers in the Heart of Dixie: Making Sense of the Nazi Past During the Civil War, Civil Rights Era*. Won the 2015 Eugene M. Emmy and Astronautical Literature Award from the American Astronautical Society and the 2016 Gardner Lassner Aerospace History Literature Award from the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Thank you so much for joining this morning. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. We wanted to start off with a question that we ask a lot of the guests um, on this show, and what is, and that's what if you what got you interested in history, and how did you know you wanted to study it for a career? <laughs> That's a great question. Since I didn't come straight to history, I, I have a long story there. I'll try to keep it short, though. Um, so I actually started out, I grew up in Germany most of my life, and um, I actually got a master's degree in American studies there. Oh, wow. There wasn't a whole lot of history in that one. Uh, the history professors were not that great. And so <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say that on air. Anyway, um, but... Um, but then I came to the United States to actually get to know my father better, who was here from Alabama. Oh, wow. And um, he, so, so while I was doing that, I tried to get into a job, and I started in IT and did that for a while. And finally, I decided um, to go back to school. Um, that's a long story, so I'll keep that one short. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then the question was what, right? Mm -hmm. Do I go back to American studies or do I do something completely different? I tried out a lot of different things, so if anybody needs help on how to navigate many different ideas <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of a profession, yeah. uh, I'm your person. Um, anyway, and so then I did end up going to American studies again, and I was interested in American studies in, a in America in a global context, mm, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I looked for a school that would do something like that. I ended up at KU. And while I was there, um, the work that I got into eventually in the book, that turned out to become history, yeah. if that makes oh, sense, okay, right? Oh, okay, yeah. Because American studies can be a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, and so this ended up being more history, and that's how I ended up in a history department, and um, now I'm teaching history. Oh, yeah. Well, very cool. So kind of a rounded path, but that's that's awesome and always neat to get to hear everyone's different stories. Mm -hmm. So Okay. So what specifically got you interested in the space race? <laughs> Once again, very roundabout. <laughs> um, so, I, so growing up in Germany, I really didn't pay attention to that at all, mm. even though um, th those were exciting times. In fact, I do remember... Um, one of the sh shuttle accidents happening during the year in 86 when I was, um, that was Challenger. Oh, yeah. Uh, while I was graduating from high school. I remember that, but it wasn't something on my radar mm -hmm. or anything. I just said, oh, 
that's too bad, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kinda, um, and so the space stuff came actually with the research. So I ended up at, at KU, at the University of Kansas, um, taking an immigration class and um, thinking more about Germans in the United States than I'd ever thought about before. And I came across this um, topic that I then wrote about through family, actually. And, um, and because these immigrants happen to be, you know, space pioneers, if you will, right, that's how I came to space history, oh, right? Wow. And then I had to learn a lot about it, right? Yeah. Um, but I had some great mentors, so. Oh, very cool, very cool. So mm-hmm. going at it from that immigration lens and then it building up through there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've already mentioned this, but before returning to school for your PhD, you spent eight years in the information technology industry. What inspired you to return to history, and do you still use the skills you learned when you worked in that industry today? Okay, those are two very different questions, but <laughs> yes. Uh, so, um, so going back, so so I was working in IT for a while, and it was fun and it was challenging, and I was a consultant, which meant I was traveling a lot. Um, all that was interesting, um, but it was also kind of I didn't see an end goal. I didn't see a you know what what am I going to do with this? How am I changing the world, if you will, right? right? right. And, since I didn't have my own family at the time, I didn't have dependents or anything, I thought, you know, I really ought to spend my time doing things I love doing mm-hmm. and that I'm passionate about, that I'm interested in. And so that's kind of how I started looking again at, okay, what are the things that I really enjoy in life? And um, that's how I ended up going back to grad school and getting a PhD. But the IT stuff um, that you're asking about, that's actually super useful. And I've found I use it all the time just in navigating all the different technologies that we need to use Mm, now, you know, as professors. Uh, But also in teaching students, um, I think I'm more, um, I embrace technology more in the classroom and use it basically for us to learn, right, and to to do new things and fun things with. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And Ever-increasing technology <laughs> influence in education, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. What was it like to get your master's in Germany, and how different is the German education to U.S. education? Hmm. Okay, so we have to go back in time, right? I don't know how it is today, and I wouldn't want to speak about that, right? Right. Um, so I went to school in Germany in the 80s and then uh, got my master's degree by... Finally, by 95, there were a lot of different routes there as well. Uh-huh. But anyway, um, so, and uh, the German system, so when I was going to school, you went to school, um, if you wanted to go to university later, you went for 13 years. Oh, wow. Right? And so there were other options, like you could actually get a degree at the in, at the 10th grade level, at mm. the 12th grade level, and at the 13th grade level. But if you wanted to go to university, you had to do 13. Okay. Um, and even that took cajoling for me, like, to make <laughs> sure that I actually continue on. Yeah. Because I had all these other ideas, even as a teenager, that I wanted <laughs> to do. And um, and so then, um, sorry, I, I lost uh, my place. What were we were talking about? Ooh, uh, we were talking about the German yeah, system. Yes, yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay. So first, so, so that's one thing to know. And the last two years um, in that system were really college level, what here would be considered college level. Mm-hmm. And so um, they don't actually, they didn't at the time do bachelor degrees. Like oh, wow. you go straight into either a master's or um, a dip- what they called um, diploma something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are different kinds of degrees, 
but the, the um, bachelor degrees doesn't really exist because you don't do gen ed courses anymore. Once oh. you're in college, you don't do gen ed courses, mm-hmm. right? The core here was very strange to me when oh, I yeah. first started. Yeah. Um, and so that has changed some. I know that now they do have bachelor's degrees. They've kind of tried to norm it so that people can move more easily within Europe, but even to the United States, mm-hmm. right, so that you can actually claim you have a bachelor's, right? Right, okay. So in my case, that meant I actually had to get um, go through an evaluation uh, service to decide that, yes, the things that I've done are equivalent to oh. having a bachelor's and a master's. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh. And so, I mean, I guess just to answer the rest of that, the, 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 the university then, you know, then you're focusing only on your topic, and I just quickly... That there's differences between how American studies is taught in Europe versus um, oh, yeah. versus the U.S. Yeah. as you might imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're actually different than you would expect. I think you know, essentially um, in Europe they focus a lot more on literature and culture studies, right? Okay. And um, there was, as I said, there was an offer of history, but it wasn't very super strong. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, you know, it gets much more diverse, right? Yeah. So you can focus on geography, economics, political science. You know, I mean, there's right. a whole wide range, anthropology, all of these things, uh, much broader. Mm. Yeah. Huh, <coughs> that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Very cool. <laughs> and for our final question before our first break, how does your work compare to our theme this season of uncovering untold stories? Well, I think most of us are think believe at least that we are uncovering stories right untold stories so right, right. um in in the in for the book that i wrote which is now a little in the in the long in the tooth if you will right <laughs> it came out in 2015 um but for that it, i thought it was um a unique uh contribution in telling an untold story by talking about perspectives that we normally don't think about when we right. think about the space race, but also when we think about even just Huntsville, right, mm-hmm. and the impact of the Germans there, even those who lived uh, or live in Huntsville probably haven't really considered that um, impact that it would have had um, on communities that you don't normally think about, right? Yeah. And so in that way, I consider it an untold story. And then again, also the German perspective, right? right. So talking about how Germans are raised in con- contrast to Americans and how we try to grapple with the with the German Nazi past, right, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to how it was done in Huntsville, from right. what I could tell anyway. Right, yeah, yeah. I think we're definitely learning that perspective really matters as we're getting to talk with a bunch of different uh, history professionals and learning that their perspective and then the perspective that they write about makes a difference for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the big thing has been, like, a lot of people have said, like, who is who is that story untold to? Like, who is the one who hasn't heard it yeah. is, like, the biggest issue. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take our first ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. All right, good morning and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us, Sophia and I are here with Dr. Laney, and now we're going to move into a discussion around her first book, which is titled German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie, which was published by Yale University Press in 2015. So the book focuses on German rocket specialists and their families who were brought to the United States as a part of Project Paperclip. German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie examines the effects of this migration on the Huntsville area specifically. And that, for listeners that may not know, is a part of Alabama. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes. Okay. So for our listeners that might not be aware, what was Project Paperclip? 
Okay. Um, so Project Paperclip was a, a military undertaking that came out of a previous project, um, Project Overcast. And I only mention that because Overcast is not as well known because it was a secret operation, mm. right? Whereas Project Paperclip became really public and well known, like it was at, talked about in the papers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the pro- so I, so I'm going to mention Overcast because under that under that project. Um, the U.S. military brought over a lot of um, Germans whom they deemed helpful um, for science and technology projects. I'll just put it that way, right? And so they brought over um, several hundred German um, technicians, uh, scientists, engineers, et cetera, right, of all levels. Mm. Um, Again, whom they deemed and were able to sort out. They've used their, so the U.S. used their own scientists and engineers essentially to determine who would be the right people to bring, right? Oh, right. And so um, Paperclip brings hundreds of them. Within that group, the Germans who ended up in, in Huntsville are the largest single group, right, as, um, mm. as a group that came over here and then was moved across the country, whereas everybody else was more spread out through the country. Right? Okay. Um, and so Project Paperclip then um, is changes everything, makes it more public, and also um, provides a path for them to get citizenship eventually, oh, wow. right? So they come in as enemy aliens, right, mm-hmm. um, who are eventually allowed to also bring their families over, and then they're pr- given a way forward to um, become American citizens. Wow. Oh. So that's a big deal, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, in your book, you talk about the migration patterns related to something you call big science. What do you mean when you say big science? Yeah, so um, big science is a term that used by probably mostly by historians and historians of science, right? Um, but it refers to kind of these m- mega huge projects that started particularly after World War II. And Man- the Manhattan Project is mm. kind of like the example of it. Right, right. right. A big project that brings in many, many different um, skill sets, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Many different people, uh, scientists and engineers who can do different things in order to build something larger than, you know, a laboratory could do on its own, essentially, right? And it's right. infused usually with lots of federal uh, funding, mm. right? And so the space program is a big science project. Manhattan Project was a big science project. So those are that's really what that refers to. Uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. And where those projects seem to almost have like a reach beyond the scope of science too, into like culture and mm-hmm. uh, just the overall uh, narrative of the period. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Okay. So what brought the Rocketeers to Huntsville as opposed to other areas to work on this big science project? Yeah, so um, initially the team uh, members, and they weren't all coming at exactly the same time. They were brought over in in batches, if you will, to the United States. They were taken over to Fort Bliss, Texas, Mm. um, and um, were doing a lot of work at White Sands Proving Ground. So that's where a lot of the testing was happening. Um, But then in 1949, roughly, the... um, the military realized um, that they needed to consolidate or, you know, bring together all their different rocket development sites. Um, and they were looking for a place to go, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it wouldn't just be what was happening out in Fort Bliss, but, Bliss, but also in other parts of the country. And so in that search, um, Huntsville uh, had two arsenals, actually, that had been built for World War II, but then were, were basically um, unused after World War II, and one was even up for sale at that point. 
um, the more the larger one was Redstone Arsenal, right? And that's yeah. what we still know that name, right? When we think of Huntsville, we mm. think of Redstone Arsenal. And so um, so it was the army making that decision, essentially. And there were, of course, senators lobbying, right? <laughs> so right, there had right. been a lot of lobbying going on already before. Uh, but then that's how Huntsville ended up um, getting this group and thousands of others from mm. around the country, right? So yeah. again, you know, we're talking about 120 roughly families um, coming there, right. German families, and then, you know, thousands of others yeah. joining them at yeah. the same time Absolutely. coming to the area. Yeah. Yeah, definitely ties into that immigration piece that we talked about at the first segment, too, with how that impacts in the culture as well. With Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I just thought of something that I should probably mention about why Huntsville. Um, so if you think about, um, you know, if you're going to build rockets and you want to launch them somewhere, you have mm -hmm. to think about how are you going to get those, which later become humongous rockets, right? right? Um, to the place of launching. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And so um, what you needed is a waterway, essentially, oh. that would get, mm -hmm. you know, so that you could, that was the easiest way, basically, to transport those rockets then finally to uh, Cape Canaveral. Right? Oh, yeah, right? that's right. So that's where Huntsville also plays a role because mm. it has um, the Tennessee River um, there. So, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mix of all the elements. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a very big and broad question, but how did the influx of German researchers shape Huntsville as we know it today? And alternatively, how did Huntsville end up shaping the, these researchers? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, read my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, in some ways, I guess what I'm trying to say in the book is they had a larger than expected influence. The Germans had a larger than you would normally think um, influence on the community just because of their preeminence and um, because they were seen as spearheading the rocket program, right? And so in that way, they became um, iconic. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, there was a lot of meaning attached to them around moving us forward in the space race, um, and so whatever they did in the town um, was always attached to, it's the Germans that are doing this, right? Oh, yeah. So there's the, um, so when they, you know, started uh, joining the symphony orchestra, um, then the symphony orchestra became more prominent mm. because of them, right? right? Even okay, though yeah. they weren't the ones who started it necessarily, uh -huh. right? But, um, and then there are other examples like that all around town, you know, um, and when people talk about the people who, um, remember them coming in when they talk about the Germans they they think of them as having had you know huge in influence on education on uh, on culture right um, on social life not quite as much maybe mm -hmm. right um, so but that's how they become very influential and even today you know I mean you ask anybody who grew up in Huntsville I don't know if either one of you have no. Uh, but anybody who grows up there, even today, is very aware of their presence and their um, importance to the town, wow. their perceived importance, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And vice versa, you know, I mean, Huntsville, uh, no doubt, has had a huge influence on them. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, that would be going into individual stories. I think what might be important is, um, you know, being – think of them as immigrants, right, as people who are coming from a different, completely different place, um, trying to integrate, trying to belong, become mm. part of the community, means that they had to, of course, adapt, right, right. and learn um, 
Alabama cultural norms. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. And um, and they had to, you know, essentially. So in that way, I think they became, they were very much influenced. And of course, their children, right? So the next generation, they're Alabamians. Right, 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 yeah. So with that German background, <laughs> right, with a very mm-hmm. strong influence, I think. And I think that's part of what's really important in this group and why I, I studied them, mm-hmm. um, because you don't often see a whole group come together, right? Oh, yeah. And get, be transplanted at the same time, yeah, basically, absolutely. right? And so even though um, the children might not have had their, you know, extended family members there, their grandparents, their aunts or uncles or mm-hmm. whatever with them, um, they did have this extended group of Germans right. um, that, sent, you know, in some ways could function in that way and, yeah. Yeah. and create that community, right? That makes sense for sure. Mm-hmm. Would you say that every, like, member of that group kind of had a similar experience in their, like, adjustment to uh, Alabama culture, or were there some outliers that it didn't really stick as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, like in any group of people, you're going to find a, a variety right. of experiences and um, ways of dealing with the world around them, right? Mm-hmm. A lot has to do with age, with um you know, what, what, uh, whether they're married or not, mm, right? Yeah. Um, for the children also, what age were they when they came here, right? So if you're a toddler, you, you know, right. you're just going to soak up whatever's around you. But mm-hmm. if you're already a teenager coming here oh, or coming yeah. to any other country, right, um, that's a lot of adjusting, right? right? And, um, you know, there was very few um, would have what said that in the interviews, but, you know, I did hear some that there was teasing about being German oh, and what that mm-hmm. means. And interestingly, that was later, right? Oh. That wasn't like right early on. I think everybody, people weren't really as aware hmm. of um, of where these folks had come from yeah. and that Nazi past, right? right. But then um, the more kind of po- um, popular culture would create stereotypes around Nazis, right? Mm, the more yeah. that became front and center in uh. people's lives and therefore also played out then on the playground or wherever, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Huh. That's that's really interesting that it was a progression into that sort of like, you know, otherness instead of like right from the beginning. Yeah. 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 You include a variety of perspectives in the book, ranging from African-Americans and Jews to the researchers, families, and friends. What did you learn from reading such a wide variety of perspectives on these scientists? Uh, So most of it wasn't reading about it. (laughs) Most of it was actually um, interviewing them. And, um, I mean, you know, the thing that struck me probably the most is something that we know, but when you talk to somebody telling you of the, about their experiences becomes more visceral, right? Yeah. And so listening, for, for exa- I'm thinking, for example, of um, the African-American community, the few that actually I, I was able to talk to, first of all, I had to convince them that they even had something to say about this topic, oh, right? Because yeah. for them, it was like, yeah, okay, the Germans, we had nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of the point, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I want to hear from you what it was like and how you experienced this, yeah. right? And so that was, um, and, and experiencing that in a conversation was is very different than just reading it in a textbook. Right, right. right. Um, and then other things that struck me, uh, again, th- in the African-American community was, you know, somebody tel- telling me what it was like coming from somewhere in the northern U.S. 
taking the bus. And um, this is in the days of the Green Book, right? This is in the days of Jim Crow, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to uh, move down south of all places, right, Um, as an African-American, because you're going to work with this military installation, right, Mm -hmm. and later with NASA. Um, But that, those stories were really, um, they really, they really touched me, right, in ways that, again, it's very different to have that first-hand story rather than reading about it. Um, in the Jewish community, I mean, I was sometimes really struck at um, how blasé some of them were about mm. the fact that the Germans had worked for the Nazis, wow, right? Oh, yeah. And, that, you know, I tried to figure out why that would be, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's also very individual. Um, some of it has to do with having lived in the South you know, for generations and having learned how to um, adapt essentially to a maybe a little more hostile environment Mm -hmm. um, to their beliefs and and lives and who they are, right? Right. And um, so it was, that was really um, enlightening, I will say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then on the other hand, (laughs) listening to people who just adored, you know, the Germans and, um, and thought they were, you know, you know, lifesavers, and they changed everything, and um, national heroes, and, you know, it's like, wow, this is, the contrast was really yeah so blatant, right? Yeah. That, that, and that was interesting to, again, to experience rather than just to read about. That's right. why I'm stressing that so much, you know. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, really neat that you're able to do that and gather every source for your book or from that first-person perspective and conversation. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that process was... I don't know, like, harder than if you were to have just, like, found the accounts in writing? Or was it, like, better in gaining, like, the sort of angles that you wanted to find? Or what was that like? (laughs) So, (laughs) of course I'm going to tell you it's better. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, well, I mean... So the thing is, when you do oral history, it's a lot of work. Let's just right, put it that first. Right. First of all, it's mm-hmm. a lot of work because you're interviewing, and then you have to transcribe. You have to figure out what parts you're going to use and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also have a personal connection to um, to what you're writing. So when you write things down, when you quote people, you are much more uh, beholden, I think, or feel more. Be- I felt more beholden to my ethics and oh, yeah. being sure that I represent people. Um, the way that they've presented themselves right, to me right. in a fair manner, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's where I think um, your personal ethics and your um, academic ethics, like your scholarly ethics, play a, play a big role in oral right. history. Um, and so, and then trying to figure out, okay, what do I really want to focus on and what not, right? Because people in interviews will talk about all sorts of things um, mm. that may or that you don't have to basically address, or you can, or you choose, you basically choose. That's right. true for written sources as well, but mm-hmm. again, you're thinking of the person sitting in front right. of you. I had one person tell me, um, in the Jewish community actually, after the interview, she said, you know, I realized afterwards, I talked about all sorts of things that you really don't need. I want you to strike all that. Oh, yeah. Wow. And that was after it was already transcribed. Oh, no. That was heartbreaking, oh, yeah, that right? heartbreaking. <laughs> Um, so I try, you know, I tried to explain to her that that's not just for me, that these are sources that can be used in the future by future researchers, oh, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, things like that. And then of course I also had people, um, 
who in the last minute pulled back and said they wouldn't, oh. uh-uh, we're not doing this, right? Wow, yeah. There was a lot, and that's also, um, for me, has been a, was a challenge is um, that there was, there's a, there was a lot of guardedness around this story in the community because they had experienced um, some pretty negative press mm. uh, back in the 80s, right? And and actually books written about them that oh, they yeah. did, or at least one for sure, actually two, um, that uh, were done by investigative reporters mm. who were not kind oh, at all, that's right? Hard. That's hard. And so they really were, were cautious about talking to me. And I was essentially, I mean, I even overheard somebody talking on the <laughs> phone. Like while I was sitting there with them on the interview, they took a moment to, to uh, break. Uh, basically telling the other person that I'm okay, right? Oh, yeah. It's okay to talk to me. Mm-hmm. But that could have changed at any moment. Right. Right? And at any moment, they could have said, we're pulling back. We're, yeah. you know, we don't want you to use our interviews. And then, even though I had signed consent forms, mm-hmm. it would have been upon me to say, okay, do I go forward anyway? Oh, right? yeah. So those right. are kind of the, those are the difficulties with oral history. Right. Um, and also keeping in mind that you're talking about, you know, you're talking in the present about the past. Yeah. Which is very different from looking at sources that were created in the past. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to keep in mind, okay, what, what happened in between what might change this narrative right. what, and, and including me, right. Who yeah. am I to the interviewee? Right? Yeah. Who do they see me as? Um, so the, again, one of the Jewish uh, interviewees, um, later said, you know, um, said something about the fact that um, that I hadn't told her that I was actually uh, related to one of the German families, oh. right, and that I was, um, uh, and that, so so that I had that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but she actually embraced that. Oh wow! And said, you know, and and said and saw that as a positive, hmm. which I I was really surprised by. Yeah. I was tr- constantly battling with myself. How much do I tell people about myself before we do the interview? Right. Um, so that I don't, it's not so curtailed that it really is distorted mm. the story that I'm getting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely a, a very different way to do history with the the oral side of things and getting those stories and how memory plays into is definitely a great like consideration and but I feel like it definitely brings a whole different angle to history having those real stories or they're all real stories but the <laughs> the stories from the people that experienced them like firsthand yes. so very cool yes, yeah. yes. we're going to take another ad break but we'll see you again in 2 minutes Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us this episode, we're joined with Dr. Laney, um, and we're about to continue our discussion. As we mentioned at the top of the hour, Dr. Laney has received multiple awards for her research. In addition to the recognitions her books have received, Dr. Laney has also earned a grant from the National Science Foundation, has held two fellowships at Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum, and two fellowships sponsored by NASA. Currently, as a professor at Auburn University, Dr. Laney is working on multiple projects related to the global movement of highly skilled migrants. How has your work with the National Science Foundation, the Smithsonian, and NASA intersected? Has each organization brought you distinctly different projects to work on, or has there been a common underlying theme? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so, uh, 
maybe I need to explain very briefly um, how this works uh, in academia when you're getting a PhD. Yeah. It takes forever. <laughs> and so writing a book, like first writing your dissertation and then turning it into a book that takes years. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what most of that funding was for, right? So uh, the National Science Foundation. <clears throat> so for each of them, essentially, they're, so they're all related to that book. Okay. Um, because, yeah, so, so it was ways to get funding. Um, so I wouldn't have to teach as much, mm, right? Yeah. Um, but the ones that, so the National Science Foundation one sounds really cool, right? I love having that on my seat. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it, it was also the hardest to apply for oh. because it had the most requirements with it. it was, but it was also like, the shortest and the, probably the I think the least amount of money, <laughs> right? But it's, so it's got all this prestige right, attached. Yeah. So it's useful for that. I'll mm -hmm. put it that way, right? So yeah. that's been that's of course I'm sure uh, impressed the people who hired me here at Auburn. <laughs> um, but also so but the other ones, um, the ones that uh, are associated with the Smithsonian Institution, those were actually. Um, fellowships where I went there and I and I w worked with the curators there oh, wow. at the uh, National Air and Space Museum that's also how I met my current husband oh. <laughs> <laughs> only husband I should say <laughs> only ever but um, so um, so the fellowship you know introduced me essentially to a whole new world right I was out there in Lawrence Kansas working away yeah, yeah, <laughs> on my yeah. dissertation and all of a sudden I'm catapulted into this world in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. where basically the top people in space, uh, yeah. space history work, right? Yeah. Um, by the way, that's where I learned very quickly about my space <laughs> history. <laughs> learned um, um, I, my, my story um, is always about how I was introduced to someone. I, um, I was introduced to Buzz Aldrin. And, and, wow. And I wow. said, who? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's, that's funny. That's how you know how little I knew about <laughs> space history at the time. And uh, I think everybody around me was shocked as well. I kind of said it quietly. Now, yeah. I've, now I've told the whole world. So oh, anyway. that's okay. Um, so, yeah. So it, and that was just fantastic because, um, first of all, I had these wonderful conversations with people who knew the field very well and from very different angles, right? All the curators are specialists in different um, areas. Um, I had access to the material culture, of course, you know, at the Air and Space Museum, but then also everybody else who's in D.C. and all the archives, right? So it's right. like it's a game changer. It's a complete game changer to have a fellowship um, in Washington, D.C., oh, I yeah. think, of any kind. And um, being introduced to all these different people, whether it's astronauts or, yeah. or scholars, right? Yeah. And also really seeing firsthand how people work in um, historians' work yeah. In that environment, you know, in that uh, that national capital, federal environment, yeah. um, very very interesting. Um, so I was lucky enough to have two fellowships there, and um, I actually eventually I moved to DC because um, I moved in with my now husband, <laughs> and, um, and so I w I spent years then there in that area before I actually moved down here. I did some adjuncting work there as well. Oh, wow. um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Very mm -hmm. cool. When you were there meeting with all the other scholars, did you feel like your work was similar to what they were doing too or very unique? So uh, they, yeah, they wouldn't have invited me if they didn't think there was something unique about right, me, right, right, yeah. what I'm doing. That and makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I think they were excited about my project, but of course it also fit into things that some okay. of them had done. Yeah. So, 
um, my mentors in particular, my mentor, um, Dr. Mike Neufeld in particular, right, um, he was very excited about this project. He had already done a lot of work on the German rocket team, but not this kind of work, okay. right? Not in Huntsville, per right. se, and, and, and on this level and thinking about the social and cultural context right. and meaning of all of this. Um, yeah. And so that was unique for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely links to the untold story theme, too, where <laughs> your perspective. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your work goes much deeper, deeper than simply recalling the history of the Cold War and the space race. In fact, you cover a variety of connected topics from migration to social relations to memory. How would you explain this interconnectedness of your historical focus to so many important ac- aspects of American life? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of those big questions. Yeah. Um, hmm. I yeah, I'm not sure. So I'm not sure I'm I'm very good at generalizing this because this was a very specific project. Mm-hmm. And um what I was but I guess you can generalize it to some extent. For me what was important was this clash between uh, German memory and American memory, essentially. And right. then the thinking about how both uh, societies had been very repressive against marginalized groups, right? Mm-hmm. And how that then plays out in the way they talk about the past and different people talk about the past who were involved in repressing, if you will, um, even if it wasn't consciously and on purpose, right? Um, but also involved on the other side and basically seeing their voices repressed, right? right. So how does that play out then in this context of migration, right? So that, and that the only way that happens, right, is, or not the only way, but that's the main way those kind of things happen, that you yeah. have uh, one group joining another group. Um, so maybe the way to think about it is, um, you know, just like language um, starts to change over time um, with the influence of other people, mm-hmm. right, around and bringing in other words, et cetera, right? Similarly, I think memory changes yeah. um, based on who gets to tell the story, essentially, and tells the past. Um, so in that way, you could say it's a, it's a general theme, you know, if you're going to have a group of people, and I actually see that repeated a lot here in the States. You see uh, a, a town, maybe it's more cities, right, where a larger group of people from another nation um, live, um, especially if they're together kind of in an enclave, right, they're going to start um, telling their story and adding it to the narrative of that right. area, yeah. right? And it becomes more and more part of that area. And then it becomes essentially also um, the narrative of those who aren't part of that enclave, right? But mm-hmm. that's also part of their story. You know, our Italian-Americans over here, right? right? You yeah. know, they're very important to who we are now, mm-hmm. you know, Um and so in that way, I think it's all linked together, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good way of capturing the, the nuance of your topic that it's hard to make those big, broad statements. But yeah, yeah. That, that's really cool thinking about how it, they were two different groups that like kind of had the tables flipped on them of from being the people oppressing the minorities to being the minority that could or did get oppressed. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So... Maybe a little, little smaller of a question here. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have any specific anecdotes you can share with our listeners about the work you have done with any of these internationally renowned organizations or the grants that you earned with them? We kind of already already talked about the oral histories, but any other like anecdotes that you have? 
Well, my anecdote about Buzz Aldrin yeah. was really good. Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> um, <laughs> other anecdotes. Um, I Honestly, off the top of my head, that, that uh, nothing really occurs to me. Yeah. You know, again, I spent years there um, with, and I've made good friends amongst this group. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I can, I, what I really want to say is that um, when in doubt, always go for the fellowships. You know, like always apply <laughs> yeah. for those. Um, because it can be such a life changer, and it opens up doors that you you just can't open um, at, at at your institution wherever you are. And right. I will say one of the things that I noticed is you know when I went to D.C. I was treated as a colleague, mm-hmm. right? Um, even though I was a you know Ph.D. student still right. writing my dissertation, they treated me very collegial. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, when I went back to Lawrence, I was the student again. Right, right. Um, so it, that's inter- it's interesting dynamics and things that you learn about um, different environments. Um, so there's so, there's just a ton to learn. So I would always encourage people to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to take our last ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back. Today, for It's All History to Me, we've been joined with Dr. Laney of the Auburn History Department, and we're on our last segment now, which is going to be our Q&A with our trivia questions and then our final wrap-up. All right. So for our first trivia question of the morning, who is credited with coining the phrase the Cold War? Yeah, so <laughs> I actually don't know the answer to that question without looking it up. I thought it was um, a journalist, right? Mm. And then I had some uh, major players in the early Cold War in mind. Right. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, okay, okay. That's totally fine because that's a tricky trivia question, and that's what we always <laughs> we always like to do the tricky trivia to see, see if – See what sort of conversations get sparked from it. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Okay, so we found Bernard Branch? Oh, Baroop. Baroop, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and to be more context with that, the term was first used by Baruch on April 16th, 1947, during a speech commemorating the hanging of a portrait in his honor in the South Carolina House of Representatives. Baruch warned listeners, let us not be deceived. We are today in the midst of a Cold War. Our enemies are to be found abroad and at home. Wow. And the rest is history. <laughs> right. But you can imagine that that was probably picked up by, an, by, a, by a reporter who then right, right, absolutely, it, right? And that's how it gets into yeah. the public. So I'm not totally wrong. No, 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 no. <laughs> the chain reaction. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Yeah, of course. What was the name of the first woman in space? Yeah, so I guess most people would know that, right? That the ver- so a lot of the space history firsts were actually done by Soviet actors, right? right? And so mm-hmm. in this case, also it was Valentina Tereshkova, and um, but you know, there's there's a story to that as well, and I think uh, we need to keep in mind that all of this was about propaganda right so um she didn't actually nobody else uh, another woman got to fly for a very long time after Mm. that um and she didn't get the kind of treatment that the other um cosmonauts would have gotten right Mm. right yeah yeah Yeah, okay nice all right so to wrap up our segment in our show for today our first question of the two that we always end with is why is it important that we study history well, for one, it's just darn interesting. Right, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. It's interesting. And um, I think, you know, when I, every time I teach history with students, especially 
uh, freshmen, I find um, that watching them notice parallels in things that have happened in the past and recognizing um, that first of all, what's happening right now is not brand new, right? right. And um, that there, and seeing that there are different ways of reacting to it, um, I think is really important. So I think uh, the more we understand what has happened in the past and w- how we as a people have reacted to these things, um, for good or for bad, right, can be very useful in informing us um, how to deal with current moments, right? So it's not a direct, you know, learning from the past seems a bit too banal, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, but there is some of that in it. Um, and I again, I just think history is totally interesting. It's like, you know, uh, reading a novel almost. Yeah. I, I talk about it like going to a foreign country. Right. You know, it's like you're going somewhere else where you haven't been yet and you're learning all these interesting things about a different place and time. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And for our last question, what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Uh, stay curious and stay um, critical. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, ask questions. I I love it when students ask questions to, that are out of left field for me, right? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, why would you ask that question, right? right? And then I realize, yeah, because you're coming from a different perspective mm-hmm. and you have a different background than I do, and so you're going to ask a different question. And that's, and that's how you move forward. Do the things, learn the things that you're interested in, push on them, and try to find out the answers. Um, right. That's, that's my best advice. Yeah, that's great advice and a a great way to end today's episode. As our final uh, moments here on air, we'd like to say thank you, of course, to you, Dr. Laney. Thank you for being here this morning with us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. And thank you to the History Department and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz, with the History Club. Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts, of course, and our researcher, Colby, who helps us put together our questions every week. Thank you, Weagle, for giving us the space and opportunity to have our podcast and uh, spread history to the greater community. Thank you to our listeners, because without you, our show wouldn't be possible. And see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.